The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. As you are most likely aware by now, we have been focused on Kenya and the recent ivory burn, bringing you a well-rounded expertise from a variety of guests who are both at the burn and, however, have also been working tirelessly on the ground in Kenya for decades, turning the tides for the future as to how Kenya and Kenyans and her communities are working to not only bring awareness across the land to the rural communities far outside the bustling urban areas, but also identify where a more consumer-based culture has conflicts with wildlife and how the models of conservation are changing, which also defines how the term benefits must also reorient to a modern lifestyle. If you've been following our Facebook pages, you'll have seen many of our videos of the burn and the people we've been talking with. And today, I have the great pleasure of conversing with Rabia Hawa, 
who has refeatured in several of our videos and helping our audiences better understand why the ivory was burnt, not only from a political point of view, but from a very personal perspective as well. As Rabia has grown up with, lived, learned, and loved many of those very same elephants who are now a symbol as their ashes drift across the world. So it's my great pleasure to bring you Rabia Hawa. Welcome, Rabia. Hi, Ellie. Thank you so much for having me on your wonderful radio show. Well, it's my pleasure. I've been wanting to talk to you for quite some time. You're an amazing woman. You have started so many grassroots efforts, which we're going to talk about today. And um, so I'm going to just lead in with, I'd like to ask just a little bit about your background. You're Kenyan. You're born and raised there. And um, tell us a little how you got started and where that led and how you ended up being one of Kenya's wildlife warriors. Well, um, my story is quite different than a lot of people. I was born in Nairobi here in Kenya, but then I, I sort of grew up around Africa in different countries. So the Southern African region, we did Ethiopia for a while because my dad was in the aviation industry while I was growing up. So I spent a lot of my um, life on a plane, but also a lot of it just living close to wildlife and where we were in sort of urban settings. My dad always made it a point to make sure that we were visiting parks and sort of spending a lot of time outside of the city. And so I think that's where my um, my love and my passion for wildlife and natural spaces just was fostered and nurtured. And, and sort of growing up, I kind of got stuck into this urban lifestyle because I was doing my high school here in Nairobi and then I did part of it in England um, at Slough Grammar School. And um, it sort of distances you from from, you know, from elephants and, and just wildlife and nat national parks. And so coming back was also um, different. I had a bit of a shock, cult uh, a cultural shock, um, as they say, but then kind of just, you know, molded myself into things. And, and as I wanted to pursue my further education, I, I was really committed to doing marine biology. But I suppose life had other plans for me. Um, we had a, you know, family situation and I wasn't able to go to university then. Um, but I, I found a sponsor who was willing to sponsor my further education uh, on condition that I became a teacher. So I did this this kindergarten teaching course, which um, I have a I have a diploma for, and I I taught for three years, while at the same time landing a job on radio here in Kenya, um, and I've been on radio for like more than ten years now. I think it's about closing into twelve years, um, and I I started on a small radio station and then moved on to um, a, a radio station that. Uh, sort of caters for the Asian audience here in Kenya and then uh, I was I had a show that talked about wildlife because I, I felt like I needed to give back to the conservation cause somehow if I was not directly involved but that that's where I, I learned about poaching and that it was still quite a quite a real problem and then I obviously wanted to do something about it more than just uh, talking about it on radio and raising funds for organizations, I, I felt like this is my responsibility as a Kenyan and I, I need to do more. So I started volunteering with some of the organizations that I had interviewed. Um, and that was an experience all on its own. Um, I did a uh, an anti-poaching patrol with a small organization called Ken uh, Care for the Wild Kenya. And this was in, I think, about 2007, 2008. 
And we went to the Mara. And I hadn't been to the Mara in like, I think it was about 10, 20 years almost. And uh, within 15 minutes of being there, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm trying to learn how to pitch a tent for the first time. And, and then this, these rangers just come rushing with the car and they're like, we've got to go, we've got to go. And, and everyone's like panicking and rushing into the vehicles. I'm like, what's going on? And they're like, get in the car, we need to go now. And um, on the way, they, they told me that they had just had a report of a freshly poached elephant. And I can't even tell you what was going through my mind because I wasn't exposed to poaching. I, I didn't know it was happening in my country. It seemed like such a, a backward thing. Um, and, you know, living in, in Nairobi and sort of being involved in media and fashion and all of this, like you're just in a completely different realm. So... Anyway, we drive along for about 20 minutes and then we get to the edge of, of a Dupoto forest, which is in the Masai Mara Reserve. And we walk in for about 15 minutes and then there was this really putrid smell on the air. And I thought, what is that? And then they were sort of telling me that, you know, it's the, the smell of the carcass and it, it must be close by. And before they could finish that sentence, I just saw this elephant lying there in a pool of blood with the trunk far across from its body an ear cut off and there were like sounds coming out of the body and oh it was just like really I couldn't it took a long time for me to accept that that was a reality that was staring me in the face but I think more than that it just gave me a jolt because I thought how did I not know this as a Kenyan how could I possibly be so blind to this kind of a harsh, gruesome reality that is happening every day and I'm in media and I have no idea. So if I don't know, that means the public don't know because I'm basically the channel for the public to know what's happening everywhere else. And so then I, I went back um, and I thought I need to be more involved. So I started volunteering with different anti-poaching units. But then I also made it my personal mission to make sure that Kenyans were aware about what was happening with the poaching situation. And I did that in various ways. One, obviously, through my radio show, but then also through Facebook and, and social media. Um, and then we set up in 2009, uh, I think it was October or September of 2009, a friend of mine, Ian Saunders, and I, um, we would talk on, on Facebook about, you know, the poaching issue. And, you know, I realized kind of getting into the conservation community that it's a very small, close-knit community of, you know, all the elephant experts in the world <laughs> who just all have their projects here in Kenya. And all of us just talking to each other about, we lost five in Savo today, or we lost two in the Mara. We've just had one down in Amboseli. And I thought, why are we keeping this information to ourselves? And, you know, then I had to kind of learn about and understand all the complications and the intricacies of the Kenya Wildlife Service and the government body and, and why maybe people are not speaking out about this. But I just felt that, you know, it's a, it's a public resource. It's a natural resource of the country. And as a Kenyan, I have a right to know if an elephant has died in Savo or the Mara or in any other forest for that matter, because it's my heritage. And so, you know, kind of going into it very, very naive at the time, 
um, I we set up this group on Facebook where people would share information, whether it was tour drivers or rangers or whatever. They would just post it on, on Facebook and say, look, this is the, the carcass, you know, four days old, died from bullet wound, female, male, whatever. And, you know, it, it had an impact to a certain point, but I still felt like, the public need to take this seriously. Like now they know, but they need to know it's a serious problem. And it's not just another Facebook story with a petition going around for you to sign. So I signed up for with the Star newspaper here locally. And I started writing about all the poaching incidents that I was personally witnessing, but also that my my comrades on the field, all the rangers that I've worked with um, were telling me, like they would send me, just a message on Facebook or on my email with a photograph, you know, date, location, and I would write about it. And obviously, these were 100% verified reports, undisputable. And um, I suppose that's when people really started to, to understand that we had a problem in my country. Well, you're in a position perfectly poised to be doing what you do. You're a, a younger woman. You're a generation... Um, I don't know if the word is behind or ahead of me. You're younger than I am. Mm -hmm. So, um, and as you'd said, the conservation circle is a very small world. We all seem to know each other. I'm a friend of Ian Saunders. I haven't seen him in a long time. I've been working with Mm -hmm. all of these people for 20, 30 years. So um, having young blood, you, and your ability and facility with media to reach out is really critical today because you're reaching the next generation who, as you said, must be made aware of what's going on in their country. And who better than a young woman coming up who went to school in England, you know, had the culture shock, comes back and realizes, doesn't know what's going on in her own country in terms of wildlife, but always grew up with it, knew it was there. Um, I think one of the big differences between the West or Europe and African nations that are rich in wildlife is that I think a lot of local Africans who live with wildlife day to day that are not urbanized, they don't often realize that Kenya or their country is the only place these animals exist. We have them here in zoos, but it's kind Mm -hmm. of taken for granted. So an elephant and crop damage or a lion and Mm -hmm. wildlife conflict, it's a daily exposure. But I don't know in terms of conservation, but they're realizing now there are other ways to benefit. So Kenya has changed a lot since you were Mm -hmm. born in the, what, the late 70s, 80s, during one of the Mm -hmm. largest die-offs of elephants, poaching crisis, drought. So Mm. you really are in a position to highlight through your own personal history what has happened and how it's changing and the new conservation models that must take into consideration your generation and tie it together with the older generations and the younger generations. So your background Mm. in kindergarten and understanding how to communicate with little kids is really Mm. critical. Because sometimes we need to all be talked to like children to get the point. So um, you you went back to the Mara. You were shocked to see what was going on. You made a point of making this your mission to involve Kenyans. 
um, not just urban Kenyans, but the larger picture of Kenyans who have to live around these protected areas in the buffer zones. So now we're seeing so many changes, development, uh, railroads, roads, um, all these pressures coming up on these areas like the Masai Mara and its Mm -hmm. um, huge explosion of development in terms of lodges and the pressure Mm -hmm. it's putting on. Tourists love to go there, but I'm not sure a lot of tourists realize the pressure that we, the visitors, put on these areas. And then, of course, uh, yours and my favorite place, Savo. What is it that makes Savo so incredibly special? Well, I think for me, it's, uh, I tend to see things slightly differently. And uh, I know Savo has this, this magical appeal to so many people, both local and obviously overseas. But for me, I see Savo as really the pinnacle of conservation in my country, um, aside from Nairobi National Park, which I also believe is a very critical um, ecosystem uh, in terms of just the need for it to be protected no matter what. Um, but for Savo, uh, I'd just like to, to put it in perspective for you. Um, as you know, within Savo National Park, there is a, a, the Mzima Springs. And Mzima Springs is the only source of fresh water for the entire human population of Kenya between uh, Voi and all along the coastal region. Like they rely 100% on Mzima Springs water um, for fresh water because everything else that they get around that area, whether they dig boreholes or whatever, is totally saline. They can't drink it. And, um, you know, Savo was gazetted as a national park because of its um, ecological value, but mostly because it was really a tourist hotspot. Um, and the tourists come to Savo because they want to see the famous red elephants of Savo. And so if you look at a situation where, uh, you know, I mean, my experiences in Savo, unfortunately, have been more bad than good. I can't even tell you how many carcasses I've seen of poached elephants with their faces hacked off, lying on that very Savo soil that I love so much. But, you know, if we if we take that situation and we... You know, and it's not controlled. If we don't, um, if we don't tackle poaching and just eradicate it entirely, because that is what I think everybody's vision should be, whether it seems impossible or not, we need to aim for zero poaching in this country. If we have all the elephants poached in Savo or a significant percentage of elephants poached in Savo, you know, what's going to happen next is the other species are going to suffer. They're going to start disappearing, as you know, and I'm sure you're, you, I think you um, have seen some of the projects in Savo. Bushmeat is a huge problem as well, bushmeat poaching. And if we eradicate these vital species from this ecosystem, what's going to happen next is it's going to have absolutely no tourist value. The lodges are going to shut down, whatever lodges are around there. Tourists are going to stop coming. There'll be no need to have this national park gazetted as a national park because suddenly it doesn't have that value anymore. And it makes more sense to open it up for development like mining because Savo is very rich in uh, in savorite, which is like a gemstone, and uh, a green garnet and red garnet. I mean, when we do anti-poaching patrols, Ellie, I'll tell you, we're walking over that stuff all the time you know for us it's just green stones and red stones but unfortunately for people in other countries it seems to be this um very highly valued 
stone if if we have a situation like that and they uh, decide to open it up for mining uh, what's going to happen to muzima springs remains mm-hmm. the big question we might have somebody who decides to come in and bottle that water and sell it to everybody we're going to have mamas coming and washing their clothes in that muzima springs the hippos will be killed off there will be no balance of that water no ph balance um you know ecologically being sustained you might have people coming in and irrigating their farmlands around there and what effectively happens is you're cutting off the only source of fresh water for over 600,000 kenyans that are living along the coastline that depend on that one small tiny spring that is balanced by the hippos that are in that spring for their own sustenance and so for me savo is much greater than just the red elephants which i love of course it's much greater than this amazing landscape and these beautiful lodges for me savo signifies the it signifies my country and my people if if we can't protect savo we can't protect ourselves you said so many important things and i took a few notes water okay <laughs> water is critical on and africa wherever you are across sub-saharan africa it is not an unlimited resource as you just so poignantly pointed out and if we don't have water we can't survive secondly you you were talking about the red elephants which is an umbrella keystone species that ties this one of the largest most pristine still landscapes and it goes from the Chilulu Hills all the way down to Ambaselli and across over almost to the coast and then uh far west over to um I forget the border on the far side and then it used to be Savo East Savo West Savo North Wild Eyes has been working in Savo since 2003 on a wide variety of projects with Danny Woodley KWS communities building fences where they need to be building water catchment doing boreholes to create areas where elephants can drink that's separate from people so water is critical and um there's a few major water catchment sources the mau forest which i know you work in and uh the destruction that's happened there so if kenya loses her water sources as you just said it's going to collapse and part of what keeps that system in place is the wildlife and all the trophic levels and cascades of consequences that happen when you start removing keystone or apex species from this landscape it's not just about people and uh another one that you talked about was minings and and I've been there it's uh, you can hardly go uh several meters without tripping or falling into a mining hole that is has not been rehabilitated you know brought back and they just leave the holes there and I've and I have savorite it's beautiful it's expensive it's one of the most expensive gemstones there is but are we going to do that to kill a landscape and then um another point that you mentioned that i'd like to spend a little bit of time on poaching i'm not sure people truly understand the magnitude that lies under that one simple sounding word it's not somebody who's just going out to kill an animal let's say on a park boundary to fill their family to feed their family it's commercialized yeah. it's bushmeat we had an episode a couple weeks ago with Evanson Karayuki and the Bushmeat Free East Africa network and how critical 
um, snaring is, who the poachers are, where the poached species are going, and what it's doing to Kenyans as these animals. If you, if you say, you know, 12,000 animals are poached on one boundary of Savo, and you multiply that by five boundaries of Savo, all its sides, its exponential growth is just almost incomprehensible and then you add in the commercial aspect of bushmeat and where it's going and you know in country and out of country and then you add in the cartels this is a huge problem so let's spend just a little time on poaching and why it's critical you said your goal is to wipe out poaching but it's not that simple how, how will that work from let's say the grassroots ground up how will that affect commercial bushmeat and cartels who have so, a lot of money to spare and sort of treat the Kenyans as a, a commodity in themselves that's rather disposable. If one gets killed by a ranger, there's another one to step in and take their place. So how do we, how do you and all the work you do, Walk with Rangers, Ulanzini Foundation, and everything that you're doing, your media, all of that, how do you pull that together and help my listeners understand the magnitude that is under that word poaching. Right. So, uh, in 1989, we had the first major ivory burn in Kenya. And uh, I was about six and a half, seven years old at that time. Um, you know, I watched it on TV and it was this grand, uh, grand message that we were sending out to the world and to poachers that we won't tolerate as a country this kind of activity within our borders. Um, but at that time, my father bought me a book by Peter Beard called End of the Game. Ah, yes. And... When you say the magnitude of poaching, you've only got to flip through the pages of that book to really see from the air how bad the situation really is. And it's sad to see that the situation at that time is almost exactly what we're facing now. Um, although I have to say that steps have been taken from the government and, and you know, all the stakeholders within the conservation community to try and mitigate the, um, the poaching issue. We now have much stronger laws, which I have to say I cannot be I can't be grateful enough for those laws because we had such a huge problem, Ellie. We would go into the field, we're catching a poacher today, he's back two days later, and he's upgraded. You know, you find them with one dick dick today, tomorrow it's a python skin. Uh, a week later, it's something else. It's a lion or, or it's an elephant even. And, you know, at that time, these poachers were coming in and they are so brazen. And I'm telling you this from my personal experience. They're so brazen. They have no remorse whatsoever, no guilt. They're quite ready to, you know, to throw their machetes at you or their axes at you. They have no value for life, animal or human whatsoever. And and people need to understand that these are the kind of characters you're dealing with a lot of the time when you're in the field. You can't just, uh, you know, be lenient with a poacher because this is somebody who will kill you as soon as you try and blink. Uh, you know, they don't value life at all. And with the with the wildlife bill, we were quite I was quite involved in that personally. Um, you know, we we really needed 
much stronger penalties, much um, stiffer fines for poaching offences. And thankfully, we got that. And I think I I can confidently say that that has significantly uh, reduced the the level of poaching that we have seen. Um, But also it's, it's helped us in terms of when we educate these communities that are living around wildlife, because some of the poachers come from within these communities. And we tell them, look, you know, it's up to you now if you want to if you want to do this kind of activity and if you get caught then it's five years or it's a life sentence and a lot of them are being deterred by these um, stronger laws which now has I would say from my personal experience again has significantly reduced the number of um, what you would call opportunistic poachers Uh, but in terms of the guys that are running with cartels I mean that is something that will have to be tackled at various levels. Um, I have always maintained that if you want to save an elephant, you need to support a ranger because no one else is going to stand in between a poacher's bullet and an elephant except a ranger. Um, But aside from that, of course, there is the demand reduction issue, trying to get people in Asia and the subcontinent and obviously in, in America and in England as well, where people still buy ivory just to stop. Um, whether it's ivory or rhino horn or any other wildlife product, you don't need it. And if somebody is, if if you're going to hang a zebra skin in your home, uh, you know, what's the difference between that and having a human skull as a lampshade? Um, Because when, when people engage in poaching activities, then it doesn't just mean that the life or the blood of an animal has been shed. It's very likely that a human has been killed in that whole circle as well and so it's a it's a very complex issue um, but I think that there needs to be more awareness in terms of people understanding that poaching doesn't only mean animals are being killed it means people are getting shot as well I have lost six of my personal friends comrades of mine to poachers in this war and it's not easy you know they have families they have children these are men and women that have dedicated their lives to this cause um you know i go in as and when i'm able and i'm quite fortunate that i'm not actually hired as a ranger um it's just something that i do because i'm passionate about it and and i do it uh, in a voluntary capacity but for the men and women that are rangers they're not doing it for the money they i know rangers that are on a salary of 40 dollars a month and in 40 dollars they have to pay their children's school fees they have to feed and clothe their wives they have to feed themselves while they're in the bush if they get sick they have to buy medicine all in 40 dollars in a month I mean, even by Kenyan standards, it's virtually impossible. And so, you know, going back to the Walk with Rangers initiative, that's why I set it up. I really wanted to to bring a massive awareness on a global scale about these issues. And um, initially, I was going to do the walk on my own. So the walk was from Arusha in Tanzania to Nairobi here in Kenya, about 250 miles Um, 15 days it took us to walk it and um, there was a lot of uh, interest on social media um, about the walk and so people wanted to join and I thought it's such a beautiful trek Um, you know I didn't want to deny anyone the opportunity and so I opened for registrations and within 
I think it was within two weeks, we had over 300 inquiries and we ended up having 70 people from all over the world come and join us um, on the Walk with Rangers to make this global statement and really to elevate their own personal level of awareness about the challenges that rangers are facing on a daily basis, not only with the salary and the family issue, um, but even just the terrain that you're walking through. Uh, Before the walk, I would, you know, once in a while, um, I would try and and raise money to buy boots for rangers. And people would write to me saying, come on, Rabia, can't you just buy them something better? Like, I don't know, a sleeping bag or a tent. And I said, yeah, I can, but they really need boots. And I think it took that kind of an action for people to actually physically endure what we go through every day in the bush to understand that it's the simple things that can make all the difference. A headlamp, a pair of boots, uh, good socks, you know, things like that, that really can uh, can improve your your motivation while you're in the field, but also just make it a heck of a lot easier while you're, you know, out there battling poachers and trying to get these bad guys out of the field. Um and so that was the, the walk with rangers that we did in 2014. And, and we are doing it annually. Uh, this year, it's going to be a bit delayed because I'm actually planning to um, come to America for some time. And so, uh, but now it's more of a situational experience. So people sign up and you get to spend 10 days in the bush, literally living the life of a ranger and interacting with them on a daily basis so that it's not sort of me just preaching to everyone that this is what a ranger's life is like. You actually experience it for yourself and then you can make informed decisions about who you support in conservation and what kind of causes you you back when you're getting into, you know, this whole, uh, I call it a shark tank sometimes, of, um, you know, of conservation and, and all these organizations just battling and pulling you in every direction. And I think um, I think that people should just be more aware about what's, you know, sometimes legitimate and what isn't and what what kind of cause and effect each organization is able to bring to the table so that they can then choose and say, okay, I want to support this because of ABCD or that because of XYZ. So yeah, that's in a nutshell, the walk with rangers. Well, you've just, you covered a lot of territory right there with so many amazing points that, which is the goal of this program. And you summarized it beautifully that once you get out of your house and perhaps get into, a you know, expand your uncomfort zone a little bit and live the life and literally walk in someone else's shoes, you'll begin to realize Mm -hmm. that shoes are important, that some basic comforts are necessary to make this difficult journey, whether it be someone who's doing this for the first time, one of the registrants for Walk with Rangers, or a ranger who does this on a daily basis, that shoes and socks are critically important. In fact, Wild Eyes used to have a program called Boots for Rangers, where we accepted um, boots from anybody who was cleaning out their closet, or shoes, or tennis shoes and socks, and we shipped them over to Africa, and we we disseminated over 3,000 pairs of 
of boots to rangers through organizations like yours. Unfortunately, that wow. program is closed down now, so I'm, you never got any boots. And um, but it's still something. <laughs> I'm going to make you revive it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of boots, and getting them over there now is difficult. But Rabia brought yeah. up an incredibly important point, uh, point, several important points that it's basic needs which we here in our Western urbanized modernized world take for granted everything is so available to us right at the corner store wrapped up packaged in plastic and we won't even get into the issues of that and its consequences on these wildlife landscapes plastic climate change water bottles and um, waste management and all that kind of things but as you can see as Rabia just said it's it's highly complex it's multi-layered it's multi-linear you do one thing it affects so many things around it so um we were we typically break now but i think we're just going to go through and um continue talking because i really don't want to stop the flow of this con conversation that we're having because it's so fabulous and you brought up so many in important points so um the walk with rangers uh I know Tim Gorski, um, the man who is doing our film work, Rattle the Cage Productions, of which you feature in a lot of them. Um, but what I would like to do is go back to the burn just a little bit and um, talk about that from your perspective. Since you were at the first burn, and I presume the other two or three, and now this one, there's a lot of controversy about the burn and a lot of it is from people who are not there and have to weigh in with their two cents worth that burning the ivory was a waste of money it was a waste of elephant souls and it was a waste of effort and time and created more pollution in an already polluted world so let's talk a little bit why this statement of burning ivory literally makes it valueless it doesn't make the elephant less value but it turns the ivory valueless and a lot of what i talk about is you know stockpiling ivory by stockpiling it we give it value by thinking cites will allow sales which you know we're coming up to a really important cites meeting in september where rhino horn and ivory are going to be top two points of discussion and lion uh, to create a trade and we all know the difference you don't have to kill a rhino to get the horn but we do you can't get ivory without killing an elephant and this burn was 105 tons of ivory and 1.3 tons of rhino horn so let's just spend a little bit of time on why burning ivory is a positive statement and try and put this some perspective into all the naysayers why selling it and getting money isn't going to work at this point in time and um, that it didn't devalue the elephants and and where we're going to go in the future is in one of our videos you said now is the beginning of our work this was an end of one era and um, saying goodbye to these elephants your statement was it's not um, a festival it's a funeral pyre and the respect that it deserved so let's talk a little bit about you know, the ivory burning it stockpiling it selling it and the consequences and ramifications that has on Kenyans let's just stay with Kenya right now but I know it, it goes much bigger than that uh, you know Eli and Swahili we say pesa za damu za which 
loosely translates into blood money has no blessing. And I say this because we we really believe it. As a Kenyan, I you know if if somebody steals a, a laptop and brings it to me and sells it for half price, I wouldn't feel comfortable having that laptop, knowing that somebody's been hurt for me to gain that laptop uh, or a mobile phone. And and I think the same applies to money. There's no question about it. There is no doubt whatsoever that we need funding to operate on the ground. Every conservation organization, whether in Kenya or anywhere else, is desperate for funding. It's just never enough. It literally is never enough because we are fighting a battle that is continuous and we need to have a continuous presence on the ground and and just never stop. Um, unfortunately, uh, because people on another continent decided that ivory has some kind of value and rhino horn has some kind of value, uh, that became a bit tricky for us because uh, now you're sitting, instead of sitting on on body parts, you're sitting on piles of gold. Um, But I'm, I'm quite grateful that I live in a country where our leaders don't see it that way. And, you know, being the hub of all these great conservation icons and and amazing conservation minds that have been in the industry for years, for for decades, um, I think I've been very honored and very privileged to have had the opportunity to experience how they feel about this issue firsthand, but also to learn from them. You know, people like Ian Douglas Hamilton, Cynthia Moss, Daphne Sheldrick, Richard Bonham. I mean, these are people who I, I now have the, the great honor and privilege of calling my friends. Um, but when I got into conservation, I just knew about them from from books and documentaries and, and watching TV shows about them. I mean, they were just these amazing people that have dedicated their lives to elephants, rhinos, conservation in Kenya and Africa. And, and I just wanted to learn from them. And I did. And I think one of the greatest things that I have picked from all these minds is this issue with the stockpile. You know, we, I mean, if we're Kenya has always maintained a no trade policy and suddenly you've got tonnage and tonnage of of ivory and you're just sitting on it and and then the question kind of gets raised if we're never going to sell it (laughs) why are we sitting on it like let's just get rid of the lot Um, I know that the ivory burn was very controversial um, to some people, um, but I have to say, and and I'm going to speak from a very personal standpoint, um, you know, it was a very difficult experience for me. Even talking about it is, is not so easy weeks later because it was so overwhelming uh, I had seen some of these elephants, you know, f- just lying in pools of blood under trees. Some had been poisoned. Some had been shot. All of them had their faces hacked off. Some had their babies trying to wake them up. And and to see all that ivory lying there, I promise you, Ellie, you could feel their presence there. They were there. They were not settled. It was like these almost like tortured souls 
you know, you walk into that space and you're just overcome with all these emotions. And and I think that you have to have really had these experiences on the ground to connect with that event in that way and on that level. Um, you know, I have, there were so many journalists that were coming in and out of that space and, you know, they were just there trying to get a, a different angle of the ivory and, and trying to take photos. Some were taking selfies and it just, you know, I could couldn't understand it um, but then at the same time in retrospect I can because they they've never seen a poached elephant and and until you see and truly experience something like that you just can't be moved by an ivory task I mean it's just a thing that's you know on this pyre and it just looks amazing it's a perfect background for a great profile photo for Facebook so why not um you bring but up I a think- really important point, you know, I think as the media got there, and as you said, you know, they wanted to document photographically, but perhaps kept themselves emotionally distanced. But me here in the middle of the Rocky Mountains, I felt the souls of all of that and the the unsettledness that you mentioned. It, it still gives me goosebumps to think of it. And I cried. <laughs> that day talking about it. I cried seeing the um, clips and coverage that Tim put together because he too, like us, come at this conservation community from a very different perspective. Perspective. It's cons- uh, Conservation today is a business. It is an industry, but you know there are very personal lives at stake. As you said, mm-hmm. not only the human that dies along when an elephant is shot and the rangers who put their lives on this thin green line in what many people are calling the war on wildlife, we are at a paradigm shift in our our world history. Um, what is the legacy we want to leave behind? And this is what you, so emotionally, even here, I can feel it in our talk today, are, are trying to... Um, let people know, and even with your media work that you do in Kenya, to let Kenyans know and recreate this connection to their own, as somebody would call it, resource. But it's the lifeblood of Kenya, the red soil of Kenya, the um, what the Kenyans have always known and lived with. And somehow it's become commodified. And I think our goal, yours, mine, Tim's, and people like Nick Brandt, Tom Hill, Big Life Foundation, Joyce Poole, uh, all the people you've mentioned, Cynthia Moss, Ian Douglas Hamilton. It was actually, it was, I asked the question of Ian when he was at Jackson Hole Film Festival, why do we stockpile? You know, if, if the point is to remove value from ivory, why are we stockpiling? So I do understand part of the reason is for science to be able to get the DNA and understand the, the, the poaching routes. So, yes, granted, but to stockpile 105 tons of ivory just because you make a good point. Without the elephant, it has no value other than something is status that people have turned into a trinket. And you say this beautifully in a lot of the clips that we have, which will be linked to this program so our listeners can see this further and and meet you, visually at least. Um, So uh, working with and talking just recently with, I'll be talking with Richard Bonham uh, coming up shortly, Mm -hmm. and we'll be talking about this further. So conservation, the model, and the conservationist community over history 
and you said this earlier, has been somewhat separated from the bulk of the population. And your goal is to make that conservation from a big C down to a little C and just incorporate it as it once was as a lifestyle in what is turning out to be a very modern Kenya where con- consumerism mm-hmm. is more important. Uh, Tom Hill made a great point the other day that even under colonizing of the British, the Maasai and many of the tribal communities, they did not take on the Western lifestyle, but they are mm-hmm. now. They want cell phones. They want bicycles. They want and need food and money, which is the critical changer here to um, mm-hmm. have a life that they deserve mm-hmm. just as well as everybody else. But it's a very different geographic and uh, wildness space. So in terms of translating what you're feeling to your generation and younger of Kenyans, do you find mm-hmm. it working? Do you, do you find that the poacher is beginning to revere more their resources as theirs, or do they still feel that they're separated from it, that they cannot benefit from it, that a live elephant doesn't translate into money in their pocket that they can use? I I think it's it's important to note that, that the situation varies from region to region in Kenya. In the, you know, in the Maasai land, they have been exposed so heavily to tourism and obviously those added benefits from wildlife directly. And so they would demand that, and rightly so. Um, after all, they've been looking after this wildlife for centuries. Um, but in other communities that are sort of further up north, in the coastal forests, for example, where I've, I've done a great deal of work over the last five, six years, Um, they're sort of still uh, very disconnected from from the urban lifestyle. Uh, they don't have, I mean, the, I think the farthest they've got is mobile phones, but, uh, you know, even getting a data connectivity or, or connecting to Facebook is virtually impossible up in that area. Um, so I think that there are, uh, you know, it, it varies depending on the on the tribe and the community, and also the region of the country, um, in terms of just how urbanized they are or how urbanized they want to be. And I'm also a founding member of a great organization, a grassroots organization called Kenyans United Against Poaching. And under that, we have um, a small initiative, uh, which of course we would like to expand. Uh, given the resources, we would be able to do that. But this initiative is is quite important because it really is about bringing the the elders and the chiefs of the community together to sit down with us, with the Kenya Wildlife Service, um, and talk about conservation, but not conservation how we read about it in books or how you get taught in, in university and college or school. Conservation how they know it, like how the communities used to conserve, how their grandparents and great-grandparents used to live in harmony with wildlife, what the traditional punishments were for poaching incidents, um, which, believe it or not, existed. 
uh, in the Maasai culture, for example, eating bushmeat is completely and totally forbidden um, because they're pastoralists by nature. And, and so they, um, you know, it was it, it's against their belief to to kill a wild animal and, and eat the flesh. So it's about kind of bringing those traditional values back. Um, I suppose in, in areas, uh, you know, like the Ambassadi ecosystem or the Mara, where urbanization has taken a very strong hold, um, you would have to modify that to also kind of include a, a little bit of modern conservation um, education. But there are a lot of communities that are still you know, living side by side with wildlife, they have the odd conflict situation, but they wouldn't, you know, retaliate and, and kind of, you know, kill an animal or kill a whole herd of elephants because their crops got raided. They would just complain and, you know, go to the authorities. And if they get compensated, they get compensated, um, which now is another thing that has been introduced in the wildlife bill. Um, which has been quite helpful because obviously people are able to um, make recoveries from their losses in their already impoverished situations. So I think that it varies. That's my my view on that. Um, and, and it's a good point. Um, in talking with Tom Hill and Nick Brandt and upcoming with Richard Bonham, they have implemented a great Western concept, insurance, so that when these communities, it's a community of 60,000 people in the donut mm. around Ambicelli to reduce and regain benefit from a wildlife conflict losses. So instead of going out and killing a lion when it takes some cows, they receive an insurance benefit. So the whole community pays. And this goes back to a point you said, funding is always needed. And Tom Hill put this really beautifully, and you said it again, that the Western world, we care about elephants. We want to go see them as tourists. We want to go on a walk with rangers, and we want to participate and volunteer and see wildlife continue. Um, we love the wildlife, but in Africa, in many of these places, and today we're talking about Kenya, in reconnecting the Kenyan's love and value for its wildlife. So as Tom put it, you know, the first world must pay. And that's where donors, and you'd said it before, our due diligence, the donor, in understanding where our money goes. And today there are so many organizations, and we really have to do that due diligence to see where the organization is putting their money. We're all familiar with the big international NGOs, bingos, as I call them, like WWF, AWF, WCS. Some of them do very, very good work. And for our listeners, all you have to do is go to GuideStar or Charity Navigator and look up their 990s, which is their tax return, and see how much money, your money that you've donated, actually ends up on projects in the ground where rural Kenyan people or the people who are in conflict or concert with this wildlife and conflict or benefit, where it actually goes. And you can make a difference. Your $5 or your 5000 or your 50000 or your million can make a difference. But $5 makes a huge difference when it's given to the right organization that actually spends it on making things happen on the ground. So the first world is always going to pay for cons for wildlife conservation. Wildlife doesn't need money, doesn't have pockets, it doesn't need to go to the store. What it needs is space and security 
to do what it does. And that's important because they are ecosystem architects and without it, the ecosystem collapse. When the ecosystem collapses, what happens to the people? It's a very tightly interconnected web. And as uh, Rabia has said so beautifully throughout this conversation, it is it is a web. It doesn't direct, directly connect dot to dot in a line. It goes from A over to X over to B over to Y over to G. All things do connect. And donating from the West, Europe, whatever, the first world, where we have the ability to give up a latte, give up a bottle of water, and send that $5 to an organization like Unzini or Walk with Rangers or go visit and pay for this trip to walk with someone like Rabia, and you will learn and reconnect with the rhythms of life on a landscape that has megafauna that we no longer have. So that's not to say we don't have our own issues and killing off of wildlife here, but it's slightly different. So um, once again, donate, and uh, I'll be providing the links for the various pages that and links that Rabia has talked about. And do your due diligence. Help. We all want to make a difference. We can make a difference, and that's one of the things Rabia has made very clear. One person can make a huge difference. When you get five people, ten people, 700 people together, you're making a dent in how the world is going to turn and how the future is going to shape up for us. So um, we covered conservation is a, is a big business and that um, a lot of people are making money off of it, but it doesn't necessarily translate down to the communities. So we need to make sure that that starts happening. So uh, you said a little bit ago you're coming to the United States. When is that? I am. Uh, so I actually got accepted into what's called the Mandela Washington Fellowship that runs under the Young African Leadership Institute. Um, and yeah, I have to say, um, I am so thrilled and I'm so excited about this because I, I never had the opportunity to go to university. And even though it's just a short six week fellowship, I am so excited. And I am also very convinced that what I learned from, from the institute that I'm placed in, which is the University of California, Berkeley, uh, I will be able to gain the tools to make a real change and a real difference here on the ground in Africa because you know I'm, I'm dealing with a lot of legislative issues as well with the wildlife bill um, and a few amendments that we want to get included in there um, and so I think it's going to be quite a, quite a critical um, component of, of what I'm trying to achieve for my country and of course for wildlife here and I'm really really grateful to the American people and the American government for um, coming up with a program like this because we we don't have opportunities like that here in in Kenya um, and in a lot of uh, parts of Africa as well. So it's it's really something that is changing lives. And um, even though I'm a Kenyan citizen, I believe that we are all brothers and sisters of of the same world and the same earth. And you know, we we should really just try and support each other. And um, and I just I want to say one thing about uh, about donors because I know a lot of people question why all these African organizations are coming to uh, to America and Europe to fundraise. And and to put it simply, we um, 
we don't have the ability to do that here very efficiently. Uh, you know, we, we've tried to raise funds. I've tried to raise funds here locally, but it's not um, it's not an amount that is significant enough to, to make the changes that we need. You know, we have the, the training and the expertise on the ground. Uh, you know, the rangers who are able to, to track in the night and do night ambushes and, and patrols and just walk for long hours, clocking 30 kilometers a day. Uh, you know, we have the, the physical ability to do that. But what we need is the financial support to make that happen. And so that's what I'm, I'm trying to um, to get some support for as well during my, my trip there after my fellowship. Um, I'll be staying on until possibly the 20th of August. Um, sorry, there was a knock on my door. <laughs> Unfortunately, we are out of time today. You've got a knock on the door. My phone is ringing off the hook. <laughs> So as yes. you said, we have only one earth. If we don't care, who will? So thank you, Rabia, thank you. so much for your time and this fabulous conversation. And our listeners, take a walk outside, put your feet on the earth, and check into our wild world. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up, our forests don't grow, our communities go hungry, our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect, it's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 